0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Politics and Polemics, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Megu. I'm also the Public Relations Officer of the United National Congress, the official opposition party in the Republic of Trinidad and Tobago in the Caribbean. Today, my guest is Scott Sumner, author of the book The Money Illusion, Market Monetarism, The Great Recession, and the Future of Monetary Policy, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2021, out now in hardcover and on Kindle. Welcome, Scott.
1: Thank you for inviting me, Kirk.
0: Uh, Glad to have you here. Uh, I, I really look forward to our conversation. I do as well. Yeah, great. We usually start off by asking our authors to please you know, uh, let our audience know a little bit of your background and particularly in relation to the subject of this book.
1: So can you do that for us, please? Okay. So I studied economics at Wisconsin and then graduate school at the University of Chicago. Um, I taught for over 30 years at Bentley University uh, near Boston. And in recent years, I've been a researcher at the Mercatus Center uh, which does public policy oriented research in uh, Arlington, Virginia. Although I'm actually working out of my house in California right now.
0: Okay, all right,
1: good, good. And your, uh, in terms of,
0: uh, I was looking at your Wikipedia uh, biography, and I know those aren't always the most accurate. So, but uh, so maybe I can ask, uh, yeah, for you to confirm it, it. It not only mentions your your academic um, background, uh, as well, but it, it, it also, uh, lists you as, uh, was it an activist for the democratic party? Are, are you an, uh, an, an active oh, member?
1: Is that right? No, um, that that's, uh, inaccurate. Someone mentioned that to me and unfortunately I don't really do anything with Wikipedia, so I haven't yeah. corrected it. Uh, I'm not really a uh, activist in either party. Okay, um, apparently, uh, Somebody did that maliciously. <laughs> oh right, okay. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know yeah. why. Okay,
0: because yeah, I, I, I thought it was an interesting question because, uh, um, because if it were true, and and we've established that it's not, but but if it were true, I, I would have found that interesting because, uh, you, you know, your your theory doesn't sound, uh, you know, particularly typically uh, democratic, uh, you know, with, with, you know, with the freedmen. Uh, uh, part, you know, uh, of your inspiration, right. let's say, you know, that, so th- that would have been interesting to, to explore, but, but that's an error. So at least we've established that for the audience. <laughs> that's right. right. So, um, in terms of, of the title of your book, the money illusion, uh, what is it that you're referring to there? The money illusion and why is it important?
1: Well, traditionally in economics, the term money illusion refers to people confusing real and nominal variables. Mm. Um, So, you know, if people um, think that a 5% pay increase makes them better off in a year of 10% inflation, then they're said to suffer money illusion. They don't realize that the, the value of their paycheck has actually gone down because of inflation. So uh, focusing on nominal variables rather than real variables is the traditional definition. Um, and it's believed to be one of the causes of, of business cycles, one of the reasons why when there's deflation, uh, you have high unemployment and, and so on. But in terms of the title of the book, I, I have a second meaning, which is that uh, a lot of things in monetary policy are not what they seem. And that we there are a lot of sort of cognitive illusions associated with monetary policy that have led us astray. Uh, for instance, people often assume that low interest rates are an easy money policy and right. that sort of thing. And these illusions, I think, have contributed to policy mistakes, um, including the Great Recession. Yeah, you, you've
0: you've mentioned that uh, in your book a, a few times. And and it seems really counterintuitive that particular example for uh, you know like what you just said of that low um, interest rates equals easy money that that's what you know people are taught in first year economics at least when I was uh, taking that and uh, and it, it, it's it's common um, lore if if you want to put it that way
1: um, to tell us why why we are wrong in thinking that well the reason people. F- tend to think that is that the immediate effect of an easy money policy often is for a reduction in interest rates. But then over time, uh, expansionary monetary policy will raise incomes and inflation in an economy. And those uh, changes in the macroeconomy will put upward pressure on interest rates. So we saw this in, for instance, the 1960s and 70s in the United Mm -hmm. States, where faster growth in the money supply led to higher and higher rates of inflation. And that high inflation pushed up nominal interest rates over time. So that medium to long term effect of easy money is often actually higher interest rates. And um, Mm. now there is another related mistake, which is to conflate the term short run with right now. So people often say to me, "Well, yeah, that may be true in the long run, but you know, right now this is what's going on." But people lose sight of the fact that. Uh, short run does not mean right now and long run does not mean the future. So what's Mm. going on right now in the economy is the long run effect of earlier policy decisions. Right. So uh, those terms shouldn't be conflated. And in fact, I think what was going on during the Great Recession is that we were seeing lower interest rates due to the long run effects of earlier contractionary monetary policies that That slowed growth in spending and pushed us even into deflation briefly. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. And and
0: uh, earlier when you were referring to the sixties and seventies with the low um, interest rate, uh, uh, with uh,
1: um, initially low interest rates, yeah, exactly, which led to
0: higher. Yeah, that that was that's the uh, stagflation. phenomenon that you're referring to is, is that correct well,
1: not entirely stagflation. so for instance in the 60s the economy was booming but inflation was rising due to very very strong demand pressure right and in the 70s we did have some bouts of stagflation but even then uh, demand was very strong uh, prices were rising mostly because of rapid increases in the money supply and then there were supply problems, uh, especially during the oil shocks, that made it even worse. But it's important to recognize that even without the supply problems in the 1970s, we would have had high inflation just because of the rapid growth in spending that was triggered by rapid growth in money creation.
0: All right, so right.
1: It, it wasn't all stagflation. Right, right. Well, in in your book, I know the, the
0: your major uh, focus in terms of uh, – well. I, as you've described it, the first half is sort of a, a theoretical, almost treatise in, in a way, and then uh, the the other major part of your book is, is focusing on the 2008 Great Recession. and And if I'm right, if if I understand it right, your argument appears to be that the conventional, popular, mainstream academic, and even the Federal Reserve's understanding of the 2008 Great Recession is or at least was, wrong. And uh, so so if if that is, you know, the, the, the core of, of the argument, could you tell us what the key things that were wrong about these understandings?
1: Yeah, I think they were mixing up symptoms with causes uh, mm-hmm. in a way that was actually pretty similar to what happened in the Great Depression of the 30s initially. So um, there was perceived to be this big housing bubble that burst, and then this triggered... Defaults on mortgages, banking stress, banking defaults, uh, a full blown banking crisis in late two thousand eight, and so it was widely seen as financial problems causing the Great Recession. And in my view, what actually happened was there was certainly financial problems before the recession began, but actually what happened is a contractionary monetary policy slowed spending sharply in two thousand eight. And this recession, which really began in late 2007, caused the financial crisis to get much worse than otherwise. So Mm -hmm. I sometimes use the analogy of someone with a cold that turns into pneumonia. Mm -hmm. It might seem like the cold is just getting worse and worse, that it's the same illness, but pneumonia is a different type of illness, a bacterial infection rather than a viral infection. Mm -hmm. It needs to be treated with different uh, types of, you know, medication. So what we were doing is we were trying to address a financial problem, not understanding that what we really had was a monetary policy problem that was causing a big drop in aggregate demand and was actually making the financial crisis much worse
0: right right this is this is interesting because um, you, you you've spoken about um, uh, I suppose a misunderstanding uh, about the great depression that that still exists today I I, I don't know if uh, in you know among uh, the professional economists that um, that the view you have described in, in the book is standard uh, in terms of what you, you're saying you used uh, a reference to I um, I can't remember the person's name I think it was Hill um, and he was describing uh, the 1929 crash of the stock market leading to the great depression which is how people say it very often and and you right. were saying that's totally wrong uh, uh so c- can you uh, explain that uh, for us and well, and, and is, is that a, a majority view in the profession or a minority view I, i'd like to understand you know, it's,
1: it's a little bit hard to say because there are certainly many well-known economists that um believe that a contractionary Federal Reserve policy was a major factor in the Great Depression. Um, Most famously, Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz wrote a book making this claim. Ben Bernanke, uh, who, of course, headed the Federal Reserve at that time, endorsed Milton Friedman's view. uh, There was a dinner honoring Friedman, and Bernanke said something to the effect of, uh, you know, Milton, you're right, we did it, and we promised not to do it again, referring to Federal Reserve policy causing the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, on the other hand, there's also a number of economists that believe that a financial uh, crisis caused the Great Depression. But my specific point on that quote I had from Robert Hall was that the financial crisis actually began well into the Great Depression, not before Mm -hmm. the, the, the crisis was actually the bank failures and those were actually caused by the depression itself. So right. this is something I I probably need to explain here the term mm-hmm. nominal GDP because it's central to my explanation for what went right. on in both cases. That's the total dollar spending in the economy and it's also a measure of total gross income earned by everyone in the economy. And during the early 1930s that fell in half in the United States from 100 billion to 50 billion. And when there's a big drop in the amount of dollar income being earned, people simply have less ability to repay debts, which are also in nominal terms. Right. So a fall in income uh, often leads to a period of debt defaults, uh, including bank failures, people unable to pay debts, uh, a full-blown financial crisis. And this did happen in the early 1930s. Now, that sometimes gets mixed up with a separate issue, which is that the stock market crashed in late 29. And that was Mm -hmm. just as we were beginning to go into the Great Depression. So to a lot of people, it looked like the stock market crash caused the depression. But that's actually probably not the case. There's very little evidence that stock market crashes cause any kind of problem in the economy. In 1987, the U.S., had an equally severe stock market crash to 1929. And there wasn't even a tiny slowdown in the economy. The economy continued booming in 1988 and 89 after the uh, October 87 stock market crash. The difference is monetary policy was more uh, expansionary uh, after the 87 stock market crash, where it was highly contractionary after the 1929 stock market crash. So what really matters is not what's going on with the stock market, but how Federal Reserve policy is responding to these shocks that hit the economy, whether the policy is expansionary enough to keep nominal incomes rising over time so that people can service and repay nominal debts.
0: Right, right. That That's very interesting. And, and I, I like the way you put it in your book um, in terms of understanding the difference between nominal and real GDP. Like, Phenomenal. think of a pile of cash because we're talking about cash and, and money. But uh, for real GDP, you're thinking in terms of workers and factories and the physical economy uh, uh, right. rather so than money. Yeah.
1: It may be useful to use a, an example here because people often confuse the two or assume that they're quite similar. It is true in the United States that nominal and real GDP movements are correlated. They tend to move somewhat together. But that's not necessarily true because nominal GDP includes inflation. So if you take a country like Zimbabwe, which had hyperinflation um, mm-hmm. back around 2008, I believe, yeah, their nominal GDP was skyrocketing upward because of the high prices. But their real yeah. GDP was falling because they were in recession. So they're right. actually very, very different concepts. The growth rate of nominal GDP includes the two components of real growth, and inflation so prior to the great recession it was averaging about five percent a year and about uh, three percent of that was real gdp growth and about two percent was inflation on average in 2008 and nine suddenly nominal gdp fell by about three percent instead of rising the normal five percent so it fell about eight percent below the trend line Mm -hmm. and that sudden drop in nominal gdp Caused tremendous problems for borrowers. It was much harder for them to service their debts. Uh, a lot of um, loans went into default, and we had a banking crisis. So it's very important to keep nominal GDP growing at a steady rate, but not so high that it leads to excessive inflation. Right. So yeah, that um, you know, and I, I know
0: um, you, you have a theory of of market monetarism that you um, expound on, but before we we get to that with the terminology and uh, so forth, I I want to clear something up in my own mind from reading your work, which I found interesting, and and I want to know if I understand it right. What it appears to me is that you are emphasizing the important differences between the real and finance, well, I I don't know if financial economy is the right word, but uh, but, but the real the monetary, economy,
1: yeah sorry, the real and the monetary economy,
0: yeah, the monetary e- economy, you know and and um and and uh, perhaps that 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 difference has not been uh sufficiently um, um understood or, or or modeled or taken into account um by by many other uh, monetary uh economists and and theories. Uh, is, is is that right? So so you're you're, you're kind of saying that listen, monetary uh, uh, policy uh, is extremely important. However, uh, you know when there are, are problems in the real economy, you know there there are things that you know monetary um, policy will not be able to really fix. That you know you have to deal with the real problems in the economy, like in the depression or, or, or like in uh, the Great Recession, and uh, and. And when people attribute this to stock market crashes or, or housing bubbles, or, I mean, you even criticize the, the use of the concept of, of bubbles that you're saying this is, this is misplaced. You know, there, um, there is a, a real difference. Well, there's, there's a significant difference between the real economy, which needs one set of policy tools and, and monetary, where I, I, I would, yeah. in my understanding, you know, perhaps from the 80s or 90s, there was probably an overemphasis on on monetary economics that somehow that it could fix everything, the real economy and the monetary economy. Am I right in in that interpretation of of what you're saying? So,
1: I mean, real factors are, first of all, all important in terms of things like long-run economic growth, which depend on, you know, human and physical capital and technology and all those things. For business cycles... It's a mix. There are some business cycles that are caused by real shocks to the economy, most famously the recent COVID crisis, which was a real shock that created a recession last year. Um, But many times we have business cycles that are related to monetary shocks, where there's two uh, contractionary monetary policy, like in 2008 or in the, the early 1930s. And this leads to a lack of aggregate demand, lack of spending. And we have a recession that we don't really need to have. There's nothing in a real sense that was wrong with the economy in the early 30s or in 2008 and 9 that would have required such high unemployment. Right. In the COVID case, there was a real reason for the unemployment. We were shutting down you know, businesses to try to prevent the spread of disease. So there's different types of business cycles. And I argue that a lot of times when we have one that's caused by monetary policy problems it it doesn't get correctly diagnosed because typically interest rates are pretty low during recessions so people look at the low interest rates and say well obviously monetary policy <clears throat> is expansionary so that can't be the problem but in fact low interest rates are not a good indicator of whether there's a monetary policy problem or not we have to really look at other indicators like is there adequate growth in nominal GDP? That sort of thing.
0: Right. Right. And and another thing I think you had mentioned is, is um, wage inflation is probably a better indicator to look at than um, price inflation. Is that correct?
1: That's right. Because um, at least in most cases, that's a better indicator. Price inflation can be affected by both demand shocks or supply shocks. And if, the inflation is due to supply shock, it doesn't necessarily mean there's any problem with monetary policy. But if inflation is coming from a demand shock, then you need a more contractionary monetary policy to keep inflation from uh, becoming excessive. Wage inflation is more directly linked with aggregate demand shock. So it's, it's probably a better indicator of whether monetary policy is too expansionary or not. Uh, nominal GDP is also an excellent indicator of whether monetary policy is too expansionary. Okay, that or too contractionary.
0: so so all of this must must fit into your um, uh, your your well I, I don't know w- what to call it a theory, I suppose your school of thought, a market monetarism. I, I, I'm interested whether you coined that phrase yourself and then also, obviously, uh, what is it? Uh, what is market monetarism? And, and how does it, uh, you know, differ from, let's say, Keynesianism or the Austrian school or classical or, or you know, or other traditional monetarist
1: schools of thought? Okay. So it was coined by Lars Christensen. Okay. Uh, about a decade ago. And um, it builds on traditional monetarism, but uh, there are a couple of important differences. So the traditional monetarists favored increasing the money supply at a steady rate, maybe 4% a year. Um, In the market monetarist view, what we should do is have monetary policy adjusted to keep nominal GDP growing at about 4% a year. Mm. So the idea is to not necessarily have a constant growth in the money supply, but to adjust the money supply to reflect changes in demand for money in order to keep uh, the growth fairly stable. Now, of course, that's harder to do than just controlling the money supply because the money supply is under more of a direct control of the federal reserve. Whereas nominal GDP, uh, reacts with a lag to monetary policy and right. delay. So we also favor using market indicators. That's the market part of market monetarism. So I've advocated for instance, creating a nominal GDP futures market. So you could get a read on the market, um, forecast of nominal GDP growth, okay. but even without that kind of market, and, and that's a little bit uh, uh, far-fetched at the moment, but we already do have many market indicators that can help guide monetary policy. For instance, there's something called tip spreads, which is approximately the market bond market's forecast of inflation. Okay. Um, it's the spread between the interest rate on a, a conventional bond, the nominal interest rate and the real interest rate on an inflation indexed bond. And if you look at the difference between the two, that's roughly equal to the market forecast of inflation. So the basic idea with market monetarism is to sort of adjust policy until the market believes that you're on track. Um, right. And unfortunately, we don't always do this with monetary policy. There's been times like 2008 where monetary policy has been set at a position where we, we're not really likely to hit our targets. And you often see monetary policymakers calling for assistance from fiscal policy or something something else. We believe that monetary policy needs to be aggressive in, in doing whatever's necessary to keep nominal GDP growing at a slow but steady rate. It doesn't have to be 4% a year, it could be 5%, but something like that sort of number.
0: Right. If If I cast my mind back to my first year economics classes and, and and whatnot if if I remember right um, the kind of Keynesian monetary um, policy that, that we would have learned at the time was that uh, monetary policy should sort of target inflation and employment so you know low inflation and um, and have uh low unemployment as well and that should be the target it, so is, is that correct in terms of my understanding of the of the keynesian monetary policy and then so yours is about focusing uh on nominal gdp
1: is is, is that a, the right difference that's that's correct although the difference is not that great in fact because nominal gdp growth has two components one is inflation and the other is real gdp growth And the real GDP growth is highly correlated with employment. So we believe that the Fed's dual mandate of, you know, low inflation and high employment can be best achieved with targeting nominal GDP. Right. More than if they try to sort of individually control each of those separate variables. So they basically have one tool to work with monetary policy that affects the total amount of spending in the economy. They can't really target inflation and employment independently. All they can do is uh, come up with a policy that best achieves the the dual mandate of low inflation and high employment. There's no way to perfectly do that, but we think nominal GDP uh, targeting comes closest. Right, right.
0: And and in terms of of the difference between uh, the the target or the aim of increasing money supply at four percent. Am I right in understanding that, one, that is a, a sort of more um, uh, uh, Austrian-type school uh, thinking, perhaps, or, or you know, a, a, a monetarist um, economics that was kind of popular in the 1980s or became popularized in? And two, that um, your criticism of that would be that uh, it probably... Puts too much responsibility on monetary policy and money supply, um, and, and that in, it, it probably, um, uh, expects monetary policy to do too much in terms of the real economy. Am, um, am I right in, in understanding your criticism
1: in that way? I think, but for that, you'd want to use the term real GDP rather than nominal. Okay. So- we we got into trouble in the 60s and 70s um, with trying to use monetary policy too aggressively to boost real output in the economy, create jobs, increase real GDP. And monetary policy can't really control real variables in the long run. So in right. the short run, it can give a boost to the economy. There's no question about that. But without you know underpinning on the supply side. In the long run, you'll just end up with higher inflation, and that's what happened in the 60s and 70s. So today, we there's a broader understanding that you have to have some kind of nominal anchor, whether it be inflation targeting or nominal GDP targeting. You cannot just target a real variable like real GDP or employment. Um, but I should also indicate here that there are actually a number of Keynesian economists who have recently endorsed nominal GDP targeting. So. The, the biggest difference between the market monetarists uh, and the Keynesians is really in other areas. Um, they're more pessimistic about the ability of the Federal Reserve to control nominal GDP. Mm. Keynesians often advocate fiscal stimulus, right. like deficit spending, precisely because they worry that monetary policy alone is not enough. Market monetarists, on the other hand, uh, believe that a suitably devised monetary policy can, in fact, be enough to uh, provide adequate growth in nominal GDP. It has to be done right, but it is a very powerful tool in our view.
0: Ah, okay, that's interesting. Yeah, that's now in terms of um, uh, post two thousand and eight with the. Monet, uh, modern monetary theory and quantitative easing. So these things have become, uh, you know, popular and and um, you know much talked about. How how is your uh, market monetarism similar or different to those theories?
1: Well, uh, those are two different things. Market, yeah. uh, our modern monetary theory is almost the polar opposite of market monetarism. Right. So it's a theory that. Uh, takes more of a fiscal policy view of, um, the price level and, uh, inflation and so on. And, um, it, it basically rejects the notion of having the federal reserve control, you know, inflation nominal GDP. Quantitative easing is a tool used by the, the federal reserve. I, I supported the quantitative easing programs. But as with any tool, its effectiveness depends on how it's used. Right. So although I believe the quantitative easing policies did help promote recovery from the recession, I don't think they were used in the most effective way. And the recovery ended up taking much longer than expected because the policy was not um, implemented in the most effective way. And to be more specific, we favor something called level targeting, which Mm -hmm. means when you fall short of your target path, let's say 4% a year is the target for nominal GDP. If you fall below that, then the idea with level targeting is to come back to that target path with faster than normal growth. And fortunately, that's what the Fed has shifted to more recently. So we, we view the Fed's recent shift in policy in a very positive way. And in the COVID recession, unlike during the Great Recession, variables like nominal GDP and the price level quickly returned to the previous trend line. Right. We believe that's one of the reasons why unemployment fell much more rapidly this time around than during the Great Recession. I don't know if you recall, during the Great Recession, unemployment peaked at 10%, but it fell at a very agonizingly slow rate. And it took almost a decade to get down to low levels consistent with full employment. Yeah. This time around, unemployment actually peaked even higher, uh, 14.8 percent, but it's already down to 4.8 percent in just over a little over a year. And um, so that that's consistent with the Fed's policy of trying to bring the price level or nominal GDP back to the previous trend line. Um, The Fed actually calls this policy average inflation targeting. It was adopted last year. Okay. And the term average means that if you're below inflation target one year, you have higher than normal inflation the next, so that it averages close to 2% in the long run. So we had below 2% inflation last year, and now we're shooting for above 2% inflation this year. Okay, good. So let let me um,
0: be clear about um, the quantitative easing, uh, market monetarism, and MMT. Uh, just, uh, and, and hopefully this would, uh, help, uh, some of our listeners, uh, to in terms of clarifying my understanding and, and I may be wrong, but my understanding was that, okay, modern MMT sort of says, uh, you know, the, the focus on restricting money supply and, 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 and the whole understanding of money is wrong. We could print as much as we want and, 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 and there, uh, I uh, because of, uh, the way money is created or, or um, the, it, it's, it, rests on, on a particular understanding of, of what money is. And, and, and in that understanding, um, there's no danger of, of hyperinflation, uh, simply by printing money and they advocate, um, uh, you know, Printing money whenever necessary. That that's my understanding. I could be very wrong, and you could tell me. Um, and the other uh, now, where how I understand that that you supported quantitative easing, uh, yeah. And so my understanding is that MMT supports quantitative easing from that perspective. But my understanding oh. about your support of quantitative easing is not from that perspective, but that um it. In terms, it it was it was a type of monetary uh, monetary tool, monetary policy tool, um, uh, that had to do. Whereas you know, uh, by expanding the money supply by printing more money, as opposed to lowering interest rates, that you you might have preferred a different tool than quantitative easing, but but the general. Policy aim of, of making monetary policy more expansionary is what you are advocating. Is my understanding correct or am I totally wrong there?
1: Right. So there's there's several differences. The the, the MMT group doesn't really see monetary policy as an important causal factor in the economy. So they they think fiscal policy is more important. Right. And if the government runs deficits um, and increases spending, they think that's expansionary. But if, if those government bonds are bought up by the Fed, they don't see that as causing any more stimulus than otherwise. Mm-hmm. So in their view, the, the key is how much fiscal stimulus is being done. And monetary policy is relatively unimportant from their point of view. Um, market monitors have a very different view. We see monetary policy as much more important in terms of determining uh, inflation or nominal GDP growth mm-hmm. as compared to fiscal policy. And even if the government is not running large budget deficits, monetary stimulus can be very inflationary. Now, the reason that market monitors like myself did support QE during the Great Recession was there was a very large increase in the demand for money um, mm. when interest rates fell to zero.
0: Right.
1: So at zero interest rates, money becomes as attractive an investment as you know a government bond would be. And in that environment, if you don't match that demand for liquidity, that demand for money by injecting money into the economy, you can end up with severe deflation like we had in the 1930s. So uh, deflation can occur if everyone is trying to hold dollars and there's not enough dollars out there to meet the demand.
0: Right.
1: Right. So that, that puts downward pressure on spending in the economy and, and causes prices to fall. Mm -hmm. So in that kind of unusual situation, you need a QE program. On the other hand, if QE were done in the 1960s or 70s, in our view, it would have been highly inflationary, right? Uh, maybe leading to hyperinflation in that environment. Whereas my understanding of the MMT school is that fiscal policy is the key and it doesn't much matter whether those treasury bonds that are uh, injected through fiscal stimulus are bought by the Fed or bought by private investors.
0: Right, 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 good. I mean, and, and what I, I, I think this is a, a very, very interesting time in, in the field of economics and uh, um, I suppose monetary economics in particular. There, there's all these, you know, different theories coming out and, and fundamental questions being asked because of the problems, you know, we have to face so, so your theory of market monetarism, you know, which is, um, you know, ve- very, very, uh, rigorous, I, uh, you know, um, in terms of it, it, it is, uh, you know, uh, yeah, as you've shown in, in the, in the book, the, the Federal Reserve itself, uh, has had to sort of come around, uh, to, to your point of view on things and, and that how you've successfully predicted, um, Things uh, that most others didn't, so uh, all that is is really interesting uh, theoretically, intellectually, you know. And 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 there are other things. So you have MMT and, and QE, what we were just talking about, and then you have other things like you know UBI proposals or, or Bitcoin, you know, which were uh, um, these other things. Um, uh, swirling around in, in this context in in, in these new economic contexts how how does um what, what's your view from a market monitors perspective on on something like bitcoin for example or or or, or ubi i know they're they're different and, and not really related but but uh you know there are things that people talk about quite a bit so i i'd be interested uh in your opinion from your market monitors perspective
1: Well, I, Bitcoin is certainly an interesting development. Um, the, the reason that I focus on monetary policy is, um, because money in the sense of the U S dollar is used as, um, medium of account, but also, uh, uh, well, medium of exchange, sorry, also Mm -hmm. a unit of account. So it's the way we measure value in our society. Right. So what makes the dollar so important is that we're paid, in dollars we spend dollars at the store mm-hmm. our debts our mortgages are in us dollars they're not in bitcoin yeah so for the moment i would say bitcoin although it's very interesting is more like a, a commodity like gold yes it's, it's a it's an investment a speculative investment mm-hmm. um now it may become more widely used as a medium of exchange maybe in the future people will you know, get jobs where they earn so many Bitcoin per year rather than so many dollars. But as long as we have an uh, economy that um, prices and wages and debts are measured in dollars, monetary policy controlling the supply of dollars has a big impact on the economy in a way that Bitcoin still doesn't have. Mm-hmm. So I think it still remains to be seen the long run impact of, uh, you know, new types of c- currencies that are being developed. Right. I I want to make one quick point, too, about your earlier uh, comment about predictions. Um, Yeah. You know, listeners may wonder, you know, why anyone should believe market monetarist claims that, you know, monetary policy was important in the Great Recession. I think one thing that's important to recognize is that a lot of things that happened during the Great Recession played out in a way that was consistent with the market monetarist view and not consistent with the standard view. Right. I could just list a, a couple of you. Mm-hmm. If you sure. Want some yes. Um, at the beginning of the Great Recession, it was seen as an American problem. And some people in Europe were almost gloating over the fact that we'd been so reckless in our mortgage lending. Right. And the, the standard view was, well, there's this subprime mortgage problem in America. It's blowing up and we're having a bad recession. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, as, as I've indicated, my view is it was actually a tight money policy. If the standard view was correct, you would think the recession would have been much worse in America than in Europe. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, monetary policy in Europe was even more contractionary than in the United States by almost any measure. There's almost universal agreement on that point. Mm -hmm. And it turned out the Great Recession was far worse in Europe by almost any way of measuring the severity of a recession. Right. It was longer and it was deeper. So if you really believe that the financial uh, problems in the subprime mortgage area was what caused the great recession, it would be very hard to understand how the recession was much worse in Europe. Whereas if you believe it was monetary policy, easy to understand. Right. Uh, a second example is that I questioned the whole notion of a bubble in housing prices, and Yes. whether that was really an issue or not. Well, Certainly, it looked like there was a bad bubble after the prices came down sharply. But it's worth noting a couple points here. There were similar run-ups in house prices in Canada, Britain, Australia, New Zealand. Mm -hmm. And for the most part in those countries, house prices stayed high through the whole 2010s, through that decade. They didn't crash like in the United States. Second of all, housing prices in America have surged to even much higher than in 2006. Even if you adjust for inflation, they're basically back up to those levels. So the the view that it was obviously a bubble, that there was no fundamental explanation for high housing prices in 2006 looks much more questionable today. And now many economists do see reasons for high housing prices. The two most prominently cited reasons are permanently lower interest rates, which supports higher house prices, and restrictions on building in the 21st century, which have really slowed down the construction of new housing in in big cities especially. Those two factors from the supply and the demand side are pushing housing prices to a much higher new normal. So the perception initially in the Great Recession that it was obviously excessive housing prices is not consistent with what happened in the other English-speaking countries mm-hmm. and is not consistent with the fact that house prices have returned to those high levels. And now there seem to be fundamental reasons to support that. Well, that so those are just two things. I could cite many other examples, but there, there it isn't just uh, sort of a, a theory I'm spinning. There's actually a lot of empirical evidence to support some of the claims made by the market monetarists. Yeah. yeah,
0: I I. I that's that really is an impressive um aspect of of your book the the way you go through these things. now about this the the housing bubble i, I want to ask you a little further i mean you so you you have the uh the, the critique of of that analysis uh, around 2008 uh specifically on that housing bubble then but if i understand you correctly um it's not only that that uh that particular um let's say bubble that uh, you're critiquing, you, you have a general view that bubbles as a whole, it's not really a useful concept. That, uh, could you expand on that? Because I think, you know, the idea of bubbles, uh, of financial bubbles, you know, became very, very important as an explanatory uh, concept in terms of business cycles and stuff after 2008. And, um, and if I understand you correctly, uh, that is erroneous.
1: Right. So this is a counterintuitive theory because to many people, bubbles seem obvious. Like if you define bubble as a price goes up sharply and then falls sharply, then obviously bubbles exist because asset prices move around quite often. But the term bubble is actually supposed to indicate something different. It's supposed to indicate prices that are clearly out of line with the fundamentals, Mm. not just ex post, we can say they were too high, But even at the time, they were inconsistent with fundamentals. Mm -hmm. And my argument is that it's very hard to know what the correct price is. Any kind of judgment of that sort is provisional. Mm -hmm. Let me give you a few examples. In 2000, the year 2000, the NASDAQ stock index peaked around 5,000. This was a lot of the tech stocks were booming at the time. In the early 2000s, NASDAQ crashed and a lot of these, um, tech stocks fell very, very sharply. Mm-hmm. So there was almost a universal agreement that the stock market had been too high in yeah. the year 2000. Mm-hmm. And people were saying things like, well, NASDAQ at 5,000 doesn't make any sense unless you think that the tech companies would eventually completely dominate the U S economy. Yeah. Well, here we are 20 <laughs> years later and the tech companies dominate the U S economy the NASDAQ is over 14,000, mm-hmm. almost triple the level of 2,000. And claims that you know high prices for companies like Amazon and Apple made no sense are much more dubious today as we've seen these companies have done very, very well. Yeah. Now, some people will say, well, what about all those tech companies that didn't pan out? And what people forget is in any efficient market, Highly speculative stocks, most of them will underperform, but that's because a few will be extremely successful, right? So if you buy a portfolio of uh, 100 companies, even if only 10 do well, your portfolio might make money if, if their returns are extremely high. right? So we saw the same thing with Bitcoin. When Bitcoin was as low as $30, I remember reading articles that it was a bubble. Mm-hmm. This is what people are saying <laughs> yeah. when this $30. It's it at 60000 yeah. or whatever. I, I don't know the exact amount. But mm-hmm. the point here is that there can be many, many Bitcoin-type investments that do not pan out. But if one of them hits, then it's not necessarily irrational for people to invest in these sort of speculative things. Right. Yes. The the success will be so lucrative that it can offset a number of losses in other investments, right? Mm -hmm. So in an efficient market, you're actually going to see most highly speculative investments do poorly. Right. But that doesn't mean the market's inefficient. It's just sort of the nature of averaging out extraordinary gains against more modest losses. So there's a lot of misunderstanding about how financial markets work. And I believe that the real test of the bubble theory is whether it's useful. And I don't think it's been very useful. It's not useful, in my view, to investors. Right. As we've seen with Bitcoin or NASDAQ stocks or whatever. And I don't think it's useful for policymakers. The, the, those that wanted to have a tight money policy to sort of squelch the stock market bubble in 1929. And that's what the Fed was doing, by the way. They had a tight money policy because they thought, Stocks were overpriced in 1929. Right, Well, that tight money policy pushed us into recession, a depression, actually. And I would argue that to a lesser extent, and certainly the mistakes were much smaller in 2008, there was still a little bit of that residual feeling like that we'd been over exuberant in the housing bubble. Mm -hmm. And like sobering up after a wild party, we had to sort of pay a price with tight money and restrictive policies. To bring things back to normal, but in fact, that tight money policy ended up creating a, a recession. And the way I like to think of this is not the metaphor of uh, a wild party where people get drunk and then have to have the suffering of sobering up. Right in the morning, it, it's a very kind recession. of
0: Puritan economics, isn't it? Economics.
1: <laughs> Rather, think of it this way: think of unemployment as being like a vacation. Mm-hmm. Now. Uh, of course, it isn't. The unemployed really suffer, right? Yeah. But, but work is hard. That's why we pay people to work. So if you were a family that had borrowed too much, got too deeply in debt, and were struggling to pay your debts, would you say, this is a good time to take a six-month vacation from working? No, you'd be thinking, well, maybe I should work overtime mm-hmm. to pay off my debts. And countries, I think the analogy holds for countries as well. If you've borrowed too much, and some countries like Greece certainly did borrow too much, the solution is not to have 20% unemployment and have people stop working. It's to actually work harder.
0: Right.
1: You want to make sure you have enough expansionary of monetary policy that you have relatively full employment mm-hmm. and you'll still have some people struggling to pay their debts but it'll be less difficult if people are working than if they're unemployed exactly so if you have this Puritan instinct that surely there must be a price to pay for all this recklessness that took place whether it be in Greece borrowing too much in Europe or subprime borrowers borrowing too much in the United States your Puritan instinct should lead you towards Working harder,
0: mm-hmm.
1: having people work harder, not uh, a recession where there's a lot of unemployment.
0: Right. right? Yeah. Yeah. So
1: I, I mean, I know that the analogy of uh, unemployment to vacation is is a little bit insulting to the unemployed. I don't mean it literally, mm-hmm. but if you if you kind of turn around and think of the fact that work is hard that's where your puritan instinct should lead you if you have this sense that there has to be a price to pay for financial excesses right the price should be harder work in the future
0: right right now and I, I mean we've we've spoken about the the great depression and the lessons uh from there that that have helped you uh understand uh what happened in, in 2008 there's also um uh, you also talked about l- your research on the Japanese liquidity trap and insights from there. Can you uh, tell us what you learned from that experience because I, I find that experience very fascinating uh, in, in Japan because it seems like the monetary uh, you know uh, uh, variables and, and the statistics, point to a very dour situation, but the reality of the economy in Japan doesn't seem as dour as the statistics say. So I, I don't know if, if that has anything to do with, with the lessons you've learned from there in applying to the 2008 recession.
1: Right, so uh, Japan's an interesting case because it fell into the zero interest rate environment before the other Western countries. Mm -hmm. So it was being studied even in the late 1990s by people like uh, Paul Krugman and Ben Bernanke. Mm -hmm. And one thing I learned studying Japan is the situation there was misunderstood. Many people that didn't take a close look at Japan just assumed that uh, the Bank of Japan, which is their equivalent of the Federal Reserve, was trying to uh, get out of deflation with expansionary monetary policy, but was unable to do so because they couldn't cut interest rates below zero. That's not what happened in Japan. The Bank of Japan raised interest rates in 2000, and they raised them again in 2006. Now, it is true that the increases were very small, but nevertheless, they were an indicator of the intention of the Bank of Japan, which was they were so worried about any inflation at all that they sort of tapped on the brakes uh, even when there was basically zero inflation in Japan. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I like this uh, metaphor of tapped on the brakes because we saw the same confusion in America around 2016, 17, 18. The Fed raised rates nine times um, and yet people were saying, Gee, the Fed's having trouble raising inflation up to their 2% target. It would be like someone driving a car, constantly tapping on the brakes and asking, why isn't this car going faster? Right. (laughs) If you're tapping on the brakes, it indicates you're not trying to go faster, right?
0: Yeah.
1: So um, the Bank of Japan was actually quietly pretty content with that. And as you indicated, the real economy in Japan wasn't doing all that bad at least once we got into the 2000s the 1990s were a a tough decade in japan Mm -hmm. when they first went into deflation but they did eventually adjust to it and in the long run you know real gdp is not driven by monetary factors it's driven by real factors yeah nevertheless uh the japanese performance was a little bit subpar and they struggled again during the great recession so um It's important to note there that there was an interesting experiment done in 2013. Um, A new prime minister named Abe took office Mm -hmm. and adopted a more expansionary monetary policy at the same time as a more contractionary fiscal policy. So he had the bank of Japan try to raise inflation by printing a lot of money. At the same time, he raised taxes, which is a contractionary fiscal policy. Now, According to the MMT theory, that should have slowed the Japanese economy because fiscal policy is all important. Instead, the Japanese economy picked up uh, somewhat and did better after 2013 than before 2013 and had about five good years of uh, growth. So there's actually uh, a lot of evidence from the Japanese uh, example that even at zero interest rates, Changing monetary policy can make a difference. Uh, didn't make a hugely dramatic difference, uh, but it, there was a noticeable improvement in Japan, and that was despite the fact that they raised taxes, which is a contractionary fiscal policy. So this is just one of many examples I could cite as to why I believe monetary policy is more important than fiscal. But your your point about Japan doing fairly well despite a lack of growth in uh, nominal variables like inflation nominal gdp is true that in the long run a country's real performance real gdp job creation and so on does depend on fundamentals like labor force technology investment more than it does on monetary policy so i think the japanese monetary policy did hurt them somewhat in the 1990s but eventually japan did sort of adjust to the situation and and do okay uh, despite some of those Policy mistakes.
0: Interesting, interesting, and there's another little um, point I'd like you to expand upon uh, that you make in the book. And you say that before 2008, your views weren't out of the mainstream, but then that all changed during the Great Recession. Um, I'm I'm interested in in into to why you think that happened. Um, you know why? Why did the view all of a sudden change so radically? And then also, uh, is it that you are merely simply going back to pre two thousand and eight monetary economics? I I don't think that that's it. Maybe it's it's more like those insights have now generated new insights or, or new lessons given our new experiences. So can you um, uh, it's elaborate a very on
1: this? Yeah, I can give you some examples. I used to teach money and banking out of a textbook. It was the number one textbook uh, in America for that course, written by Frederick Mishkin. And Mishkin made certain points like he said, low interest rates do not indicate easy money. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet I saw a lot of economists during the Great Recession saying money's easy because interest rates are low. Yeah, Mishkin's book said, monetary policy remains, quote, highly effective, unquote, even when interest rates are zero. And yet I saw many economists uh, in 2009 saying monetary policy is no longer effective because interest rates are zero. Right. Another example I could give you is in 1999, Ben Bernanke wrote a paper that was a critique of Japanese monetary policy. Mm-hmm. And that paper is extremely market monetarist in its analysis. Okay. It's its critique of the bank of Japan in 1999, is extremely similar to my critique of Fed policy in 2009. Mm. So what happened there? Um, It's really hard for me to know. There's a a couple of factors I've pointed to. One is that it's sort of like easier to see something as a mistake when it's done by someone else.
0: Right.
1: Western economists, when Japan got into deflation in the late 90s, were kind of incredulous, like, why aren't they doing something about that? Yeah. Europe and America didn't have this deflation problem and hadn't had it since the 1930s. Mm-hmm. And we looked at it and thought, well, they must be doing something wrong. And in fact, I think they were doing something wrong. But keep in mind that in America, uh, the Federal Reserve is going to do pretty much what a consensus of economists believes it should be doing. Right. So at each and every time in history, the federal reserve policy will not be heavily criticized by a consensus of economists because it's basically representing their view so during the great depression most economists didn't blame the great depression on the fed right today many economists do during the 1960s and 70s most economists did not blame high inflation on the fed today most economists do during 2009, most economists were not blaming the Great Recession on the Fed because the Fed had been doing basically what economists had been recommending.
0: Right.
1: And the question is, well, why weren't they recommending a more aggressive policy? And that relates to my second point, which is these cognitive illusions that are hard to dispel. So at one level, economists will tell me, yes, yes, I understand that low rates aren't necessarily easy money, but it's hard for them to, I think, get past that and really see that money could be way too contractionary at a time when interest rates are less than 2%. Right, It kind of goes against common sense. So even at one level, you know it's true, it still may be hard to internalize that when, when thinking about the situation. So, um, and I think this occurs in many areas of economics. I, I've talked about bubbles. It's when a, something looks like a bubble at the time, it's very, very hard to get out of that mindset. And even for someone like me, it was hard to understand what had happened to tech stocks in 2000 mm-hmm. until the last couple of years when I can say, oh, okay, now I understand why tech stocks were so high. Investors were optimistic that the, these tech companies really were going to do phenomenally well in the future. Now I see what they they thought might be coming down the road. Right. And same thing with the housing bubble burst in 2008. If I defended my theory to people that housing prices were rational in 2006, I was kind of struggling to explain how it would have been rational for house prices to be so high, because it even went against my common sense. Right. And today, with prices way up again, much higher even than 2006, it's easier to sort of see the fundamental factors that were driving them even then but we're not so obvious at that time, but through time have become more obvious. So what we see is with monetary policy, mistakes often are only easy to see in retrospect,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. right? And you see this everywhere, right? You see this in foreign policy. We can look back on, I don't know, Afghanistan, Iraq, whatever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Obviously, we did these things incorrectly, but in the moment after 9-11, maybe those things weren't as clear to people.
0: Right, so it's it's very interesting the way you know you you talk about uh, you know living through the moment. Uh, we you know we we can't see, and that, that's normal, as you said that that's nothing unusual, and it's in retrospect, as they say, hindsight is twenty twenty. Um, so and and in the publication of your book, which you mentioned uh, in in the book itself, you know, you were writing during the. COVID-19 crisis well you started before but the publication part putting it together was delayed because of COVID-19 and um, and and you you did mention that all, you know your book is not really about now but you 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 did mention in the book that you know it seems that what's going on now is something far more tied uh, to the real economy as opposed to something in monetary policy not that monetary policy is unimportant but that the fundamental problem is in the real economy which has to be sorted out because of and and you did mention it in this interview as well so in in all of this uh, i'm just wondering uh the relevance of market monetarism now given that we are facing another radical
1: uh shift in our economy uh,
0: can you just give us your thoughts on that
1: yeah so when covid hit um I was initially kind of depressed about the timing of the book because I'd written a book about how uh, monetary policy creating demand shocks can cause recessions, right? And it comes out right in sort of a once in a hundred year real shock recession uh, that was yeah. just really completely <laughs> unrelated to monetary policy. So yeah. that that was a little bit uh, depressing. Um, and I had assumed that either the expansion would continue and I could say, you know, see how important it is to have steady growth in nominal GDP, which had been going on for a decade, or we'd go into another recession and I could say, see, this is what happens when you let nominal GDP decline. But instead, we had a recession that was caused by a real shock. Mm-hmm. So, on the plus side, I think there were three things that happened that make me a little more optimistic uh, about the book. One I've already talked about, which is that the huge surge in asset prices like um, housing in America, tech stocks and so on, make my arguments on bubbles in the book seem much more plausible than they might have seen seen five or ten years ago. So that was one thing that happened. A second is that in 2020, the Fed adopted average inflation targeting promising to uh, essentially offset abnormally low inflation rates with higher than target inflation rates going forward so that inflation would average 2% over an extended period of time. They did not do this during the Great Recession. And this policy innovation, I think, was partly motivated by things that market monetarists have been saying, although also other economists were calling for this kind of approach as well. So this policy innovation we see as a step forward. And the fact that we got both the price level and nominal GDP back to the trend line so quickly, I think was a real plus for uh, the points made in the book. And then finally, in terms of the market part of market monetarism, the argument that markets should guide monetary policy. One success I could point to there is in 2019, now this is before COVID, the economy was booming but there are a lot of warning signs from the trade war with China. The stock market dropped sharply early in the year, and the Fed actually cut interest rates three times during 2019, uh, something they didn't intend to do at the beginning of the year, but in response to these market warnings that there was a danger of recession. And what's interesting about that is if the Fed had relied on its traditional computer models of the economy, it would not have cut rates. Uh, unemployment Hmm. was very low in 2019, only about three and a half percent. So the fact that they responded aggressively with these three rate cuts was a sign that the Fed was beginning to rely more on market indicators and not so much on computer models of the economy. And that's what market monetarists had been advocating. And those rate cuts do seem to have been successful in staving off recession in 2019. And the economy was actually booming right before COVID hit in the spring of 2020. So um, overall, I feel that monetary policy is moving somewhat in the direction we've been advocating. Mm-hmm. And uh, even though COVID was certainly a setback in a sense, um, I think going forward, uh, I'm optimistic about uh, prospects for monetary policy. Good, good. And and just
0: just for me to be clear, um, although you you um, you say that average target inflation. Uh, which mm-hmm. the Fed has adopted, is a good step in the right direction. It, it's still not exactly what you advocate, correct? Because you, you you advocate nominal GDP targeting. So although it's not the same thing, but it's just kind of going in the right direction and using market signals. Am I right. understanding correct? Good.
1: Right, and, and the, the important point is that we've advocated what's called level targeting, which means coming back to the previous trend line. And that results in, a similar outcome to uh, average inflation targeting. Uh, the Fed actually has a dual mandate. So average inflation targeting is only part of what they do. They also look at employment. And when you take mm-hmm. it in total, the average inflation targeting plus their focus on employment, put them together, it's not very far away from the nominal GDP targeting that we've been advocating.
0: Okay, good, good.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know why I said
0: average target inflation. Yeah, you, average inflation targeting. Yeah, good, excellent. So uh, it's, it's been, uh, we've been here, uh, I'm sure, over an hour, and then we've had some technical problems that we've had to deal with. Um, but in, in closing up, uh, what would you like to leave your readers with? What sort of message uh, would you want to leave with them?
1: Well, uh, I'm not sure uh, exactly what would be best. Um, One thing I would encourage readers to do is uh, not assume that monetary policy is the same as interest rates, uh, Mm. because that's what the media often tells them. Yeah. Um, But in fact, uh, often it's almost the opposite. That is, periods when monetary policy is too contractionary, are often periods when the Fed is actually cutting interest rates, but not cutting them fast enough, like in 2008. Mm -hmm. And periods when monetary policy is too expansionary, it's often a period where the Fed is raising interest rates, but not fast enough to get on top of the problem, like the 1960s and 70s, when inflation was accelerating. So rather than look at interest rates to figure out what the Fed is doing, look at the path of nominal GDP over time and see if it's consistent with economic stability. Something like 4 or 5% a year, steady rate of growth in nominal GDP is going to lead generally to good economic outcomes. If it gets too high, you'll have a lot of inflation. If it gets too low, you'll have a recession. So I think that's really the key variable to look at, nominal GDP growth, not interest rates
0: yeah that i I, and i think that's a very very important uh and fundamental insight there yeah i mean you you did mention that that you see this book as a kind of a a treatise in the way that friedman and schwartz's a monetary history of the united states was so yeah I, i i think that's um that's an excellent sort of single line uh summary there and uh before we go are you working on any projects? other projects right now that you would like our audience to know about i know you have your blog that continues but uh you know is there anything else Uh, yeah and we can tell uh the listeners about your blog
1: well i have um a paper coming out probably in a week or two on the princeton what i call the princeton school and it looks at economists like paul krugman ben bernanke and others of that school that um really did some very interesting work on monetary policy that somewhat contributed to the market monetarist framework. So that paper's coming out. It's going to be a Mercatus working paper, but it will be available online in, I, I don't know, a week or two when it comes out. So if anybody is really interested in looking at this in more depth, especially if someone's a student of economics, they might find that paper to be interesting. Right, right. Well, well, thanks
0: thanks so much for that. Um, we'll definitely look out for it. And I want to thank you for the interview. I know uh, there's been a lot of challenges behind the scenes, uh, and, and I really want to thank you for sticking uh, through to the end with us. It's been really informative and enjoyable. Well, thank you very much for inviting me, Kirk. I enjoyed it. Great. Well, once again, the book is The Money Illusion, Market Monetarism, The Great Recession, and the future of monetary policy. And we've been speaking to the author, Scott Sumner. And thanks also to you, our listeners. Make sure you sign up for our notifications so you don't miss any new interviews on this channel in the future. I look forward to seeing you on the next episode.